So we're in uh, Obadiah, that smallest book of the Old Testament. Not the smallest book in the Bible, but it is small indeed. We're talking about a word about brotherhood, lessons from Obadiah. We've seen that the Edomites were descendants of Esau. And that they were known for their pride. And pride is this awful sin. It's the original sin. It's the sin of exalting ourselves. We can talk about uh, so many different kinds of awful sins. But we can go back to the root of what sin is. And the root of sin is the sin of pride. Pride is, let me give you three R's real quick here. Pride is the rejecting of God's word. It's the replacing of God's position. And it's the refusing of God's mercy. It is the rejecting of God's word. It is the replacing of God's position. It is the refusing of God's mercy. The rejecting of God's word. Did God really say? You don't have to listen to God. You can, uh, you can take what you say, and that's good, but you don't have to listen to his word. You don't have to have it applied to your heart. You don't have to really receive it. You can think about it, and you can even superficially accept it. Listen, there are a lot of people who would say, I believe God's word. But it has never really gone to the depths of affecting their heart. You can believe in all 66 books of the Bible. You can have good theology down. You can have many Bible verses memorized. But unless the word of God has changed your heart and as a result changed the way you live, changed your convictions, your deep-rooted convictions. Listen, you're a person of pride, of pride. Many go to church. Many go to church who are intellectually saved, which means they're not really saved at all. They agree with the different things that are being said. They're not going to fight over the things that are being thundered forth from the Word of God. They're not going to sit there necessarily and argue with it unless it comes to really applying to their own life and then all of a sudden there is resistance once eyes are opened and one sees this is to apply to me it's to apply to my heart then the tempter comes and says did God really say there must come a point in our life where we say we are people of pride I'm a person of pride Lord, would you, would you deal with the pride in my life, the exaltation of listening to my own word rather than your word? The word of God is not unclear. There's the perspicuity of Scripture. It's absolute clarity. So God did not give us a Bible that is a muddled word. He did not give us a... A foggy instruction book, one that we're trying to look through and think about and say, well, we just can't understand any of this. No, no, it's, um, it's clear. A replacing of God's position. 
God, I want to be like you. Instead of um, you ruling my life, this is why we call Jesus Christ Lord. He is, he is the Lord of everything. He's the Lord of our lives. He's the Lord of our existence. To him, every knee shall bow. There, there must come a time, and it's a continually coming to him and bowing the knee to him and saying, Lord, I come to you recognizing that you're in the right position of God, and I'm only a man or a woman, and I come before you with great reverence and with great adoration and with great worship. Lord, let yourself be exalted in the place that you're already at. You are God, and I am man. I am clay. I'm dust. Lord, I come to you, and I bow the knee. And listen, this happens again and again in our lives as believers. This is not just a call to salvation for the first time. This is a call to neediness for the rest of our lives. A call to saying, the place that I find my help is on my knees. When I am weak, Lord, you are strong. Instead of being high and lofty and exalting myself and putting myself or yourself in the position of God, one gets to their knees and says, I belong in the proper position of worship and trust in you. And there's freedom in that. And perhaps there are some today who need to drop to their knees again afresh as a believer today. And say, Lord Jesus, I recognize your rule and your reign currently over my life, not just a long time ago. But Lord, I recognize that you are the current ruler today. Forgive me of my pride. Forgive me of my pride. Are you in the place right now where you are ruling your own life and you've heard the word of God speak to you clearly, and yet there has been resistance in your life, a a stiff-neckedness that says, I'm not going to listen. The Bible says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as the children of Israel harden their hearts in the wilderness. Like continuing to say no. So this is what pride is. It's pride is saying, I'm going to put myself in the position of God. It's replacing ourselves with God. But it's also refusing God's mercy. It's amazing how you would think that mercy would come across as a wonderful gift. God says, um, I will have mercy on you. I will forgive your sins. I will, I will clean you. I will wash you clean. That is such good news. Such good news that God comes to us and says, I'll clean you. I'll take care of you, all of your sins. I will, I will throw in the past. I will, I will forgive you, and I will restore you. I will make you new, and I will make you clean. This is, this is wonderful, good news. And yet there are so many who say, that's not good news. Who, me need mercy? For what? I don't need mercy. I don't need I don't need God in my life to forgive me. What have, what have I done? If anything, what I'm going to do is exalt what I say, exalt what I think. I don't need anybody to forgive me. I don't need anyone to bring me low at all. I'm already right there. 
God is coming and he's saying, humble yourself. See, the person who is not one of pride, who God is working in, and it's always the result of God initially working, he works in our heart first. We don't just naturally desire to be people who are not proud. There has to be the softening of the Holy Spirit as he comes to us and he works in our hearts and he changes us to where we say, we need mercy. Lord, would you forgive me? Lord, I, I see what you're saying here in your word. I see that I have exalted myself. And God, I realize that that is the original sin. That is the sin of pride. Lord, would you forgive me for my sin? So instead of hearing the news of mercy as bad news, we hear the news of mercy as wonderful news. To one, it is the stench of death, the gospel. I don't need that. I don't want that. You know how many people today are trying to be comfortable in their own sin? They're trying to gain acceptance for their sin. They're trying to say, listen, you're going to accept my sin. You're going to tolerate my behavior. You're going to tolerate what I do. You're going to not only accept it, but you're going to praise it. And the remedy for them is not high praise, but the remedy is mercy. Mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, draw us out of our, our disillusionment. Lord, draw us out of not seeing things clearly. Help us, O oh Lord, to repent. James chapter 4, verse 10 says this. James chapter 4, verse 10 says this. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Now we go back to Obadiah and we find that Edom was exalting themselves. They were constantly and for decades and even centuries committing and giving themselves over to the sin of pride. They were replacing themselves, putting themselves in God's position. They were refusing the mercy of God. They didn't want anything to do with God. We're safe in our military position. We have strong alliances. We have smart people who are leading us. We are okay. There was such pride in their lives. God comes to them metaphorically and he says, even though you dwell up there in the skies, he says to Edom, he says, descendants of Esau, I will bring you, I will bring you down. Now there was this manifestation of their pride and it was ugly. Pride always manifests itself. It's never just inward. It always starts inward and it comes out. And God was specifically saying, I'm going to judge you, Edom, for your sin of pride in the way that it has manifested itself. For you did not help your brother in the day of his calamity. You didn't help Jacob. When Jacob, your brother, remember we have Jacob and we have Esau. And he says, when Israel was being hurt 
instead of you helping them and rushing to their aid, like all good family members do, when one is down, the others rush to their aid. He says, instead of rushing to their aid in the day of calamity, you have gravely sinned against them. You have kicked them when they are down. You have misused and you have abused your brother. This is the height. This is the manifestation of pride. Jerusalem, according to um, Old Testament history, had been invaded by its enemies on four different occasions. The question for the dating of this book is, on what occasion is Obadiah writing? We can discard two of those occasions, two of those occasions that Jerusalem was raided. Obadiah's writing does not fit. But there are two occasions, biblically speaking, and this is why scholars go back and forth between the dating of this book, trying to figure out exactly when was Obadiah prophesying here to Edom. At what point in history, in Old Testament history, was he prophesying two different scenarios, two different occasions seem to fit. The first one is between 841 and 848 B.C., about 845 B.C., when the Philistines and the Arabians invaded Jerusalem. And we can find this in the text of Scripture in 2 Chronicles chapter 8. So why don't you flip over with me, 2 Chronicles chapter 8. 2 Chronicles chapter 21, 2 Chronicles 21, verse 8, 2 Chronicles 21, verse 8. It says this, um, verse 8, In his days Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Jehoram passed over with his commanders and all his chariots, and he rose up by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and his chariots' commanders. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. And then if you read through this passage down through the end of the chapter, we see how Jerusalem was invaded and so there are many teachers and scholars who think that this is the occasion for Obadiah's writing to Edom for their sin. The second occasion is in um, 586 B.C. This is much later when Babylon comes in and finally defeats Judah and carts Judah away. So there's a question. When did this take place? Was it in this earlier text in 2 Chronicles chapter 21 that Edom committed this great sin against his brother? Was that the impetus for this writing? Or was it later on in the whole occasion with Babylon in 586 B.C.? Now, these are arguments from silence. It's my belief here that 
Obadiah is speaking about the earlier occasion, this one in 2 Chronicles, and this is why we have started with Obadiah, so that we're saying that Obadiah is the first of the minor prophets. So we are going through here in the different texts of Scripture, we are going through in chronological order. So we're starting with Obadiah, who likely was written around 845 BC. So the question is, why not the other date? Well, these again are arguments from silence, so they're not the strongest arguments, but in Obadiah there is no mention of Babylon. There's no mention of the captivity. There's no mention of the temple. All these things are absent. Furthermore, it seems that Jeremiah relies on Obadiah, Jeremiah the prophet, meaning that Obadiah would have been written before the Babylonian exile. So if you take these four different occasions, you can discard two of them immediately, then you get down to two, and it seems best to say that Obadiah was written at this earlier occasion. So here is Jerusalem being invaded four different times. And we're going with this earlier occasion when they're invaded by their enemies. And the question is, what did Edom do? Because Edom, their brother, is sitting there and somehow sinned in such a great way. And by the way, in history, they would continue to sin against their brother over and over and over again. And God finally says to Edom, because of your sins, because of the way that you treated your brother when he was invaded, I'm against you and I'm going to judge you. Now the question is here, exactly what did they do? How did they mistreat their brother? Because obviously it's very severe for God to come and say, I'm going to have this whole text of scripture written to you because of your sin. So we have these different invasions. We're going with this earlier invasion of Jerusalem by his enemies, and Edom, his brother, the descendants of Esau, did something so wicked during this time to his own brother that God comes and says to Edom, because of the way that you treated your brother, I am against you. Now, here's what we're going to find out exactly what they did. So if you flip with me to Obadiah chapter 1, the only chapter, he says this, Verse 10, Obadiah verse 10. He says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. So here you have the Philistines, you have the Arabians invading, and they are violent. And they're coming in, listen, they're coming into Jerusalem, and they are carting the people of Israel away, they are mistreating them. Can you imagine dads and mommies being dragged off, grandmas and grandpas being dragged off? This is a violent scene. We haven't really experienced this much in our country. We've been so blessed by the Lord. But if you can imagine, at some point in our country, an invading army coming in and saying, I'm taking you, I'm taking you, and I'm taking you. I'm leaving these siblings here but I'm taking the rest of you over to wherever that nation is from. Be heartbreaking. That's exactly what is going on here. The southern kingdom is being invaded. They're being mistreated. 
Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And you shall be, verse 10, you shall be cut off forever. So God is saying, Edom, because of your sin, when this happened to your brother, you're going to be cut off. And you're not going to be remembered anymore. By the way, it's very hard to, maybe I don't know if anyone here has found one, but it's very hard to find an Edomite today. In fact, I dare say no one knows one. Because the scripture here says that they are going to be completely cut off. That's how grave their sin was. So God is saying to Esau, because of this violence that was done to your brother and because of what you did, I'm going to judge you so thoroughly, I'm not going to leave anything. I'm going to completely cut you off. This is the complete judgment of God. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I, what does the scripture say? Esau have I hated. Now we, we, kind of, we kind of come away from those texts and say we don't, want to, we don't want to talk about those texts. But listen, they're in the Bible. God is a just God, and he's judging Esau, and he's judging his descendants for their, for their wickedness. God isn't saying, listen, you had no chances, and I just delight in giving out punishments. He's saying, you refuse me, you continue to refuse me, you don't want me. You've, uh, you've mistreated your brother. You continue to mistreat your brother. You have two different parties here. You have the one who is mistreating. And if we uh, are listening to God's word, we should be listening to that. We should be going, God, is there any way in which I'm mistreating people? Is there any way I'm mistreating family members? That's the question here. And then there's the other question of, Am I being mistreated? And people fall on those two sides, even in families. This gets right to the family here because these are two brothers. So you have a brother who is mistreated and you have a brother who is mistreating primarily. Now notice what God says to Esau, the brother. He says this, you shall be cut off forever. Verse 11 on that day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Here's what he's saying. When your brother was being hurt, when, when the Arabians and the Philistines were coming in, and later on, when the Babylonians were coming in, and they were raiding the city, and they were ransacking the place, instead of going to your brother's assistance to help him, you stood aloof. Here's what he's saying. You did nothing. You just kind of stood there like this and said to yourself, that's what they got coming to them. Good for them. I'm glad they finally got it. That's what Esau is saying. He's saying, look at my brother. Look at the harm. Well, he's done a lot of harm himself. Look at Jacob and all that he's done. And finally, he's getting it. And aren't we glad he's getting it? The day has finally arrived for him to get what's coming to him. And so they stand there with their arms crossed and with pride in their heart. And they're looking at their brother. Instead of running to his assistance, God is saying, I'm against you because in, instead of coming to him and helping him, 
and saying, what can I do of assistance to you and loving him? You know, Jesus would later come and he would say this, love your enemies. Do good to those who mistreat you. Pray for those who hurt you, who say all manner of things that are evil against you. Pray for them. How opposite is this to our sensitivities? And this is exactly what Edom is doing. They are saying, good, we're glad they're finally getting it. We're so glad that they're getting it. Aloof. And perhaps you've had this experience where you needed help. And somebody that could have helped you just stood there, listen, and did nothing. Didn't help. Or perhaps you've been the person who has mistreated somebody and instead of helping them when they finally got it, you said to yourself, I'm so glad that they got it. It's about time. This is exactly what God is saying to Edom. He's saying that is pride. That's pride. And that pride needs to be dealt with because if it's not dealt with, listen, that pride will go down from generation to generation to generation. We're not talking about some mystical generational curse. No, no, no. That's not what we're talking about. Some strange demon just jumps on family to family. No, no, no. We're talking about sins that are not dealt with in this generation are often passed down to this generation because they've never been dealt with. And then guess what happens? They're passed on down to the next generation and the next generation. And the question is, when when is that going to be when is that going to be broken? And God isn't coming to Esau, and he's not coming to the Edomites saying, Look, I know you have also been hurt at different times in your life, so therefore it's your right. And it's your privilege to stand there aloof and do absolutely nothing. That's what you should do. Listen, sometimes silence can be so dangerous. It's not just the person who's saying wrong things. It's the person who says nothing when they should speak up. It's the cowardly. The person who doesn't come to the defense of somebody else. The person who doesn't say anything when they see an atrocity. Who doesn't say anything in their family. I remember I heard a, a preacher saying one time about families. He said, you know, sometimes in families, scabs actually need to be ripped off. Somebody actually has to say something. Somebody has to say something. But Esau, lips sealed, full of pride, wouldn't do anything. James Montgomery Boyce says it like this. He says this, I know Christians who act like that. Let me read that again. He, he doesn't say, this isn't unbelievers. Have you ever heard somebody say, I've been so hurt in the church? So hurt in the church. Now, listen, I, I know some people use that as excuses, but listen, there are, there are people who have been devastated in churches. And part of it is because we've never learned the lessons of Obadiah. And so this isn't just the message of, oh, come to Christ, 
for the first time. Yes, we believe in that. But this is for the believer. This is for the brother. This is for the sister. He says this. He says, I know Christians, not non-Christians. I know Christians who act like that. They never help anyone. But they are not averse, that is, they are not against, to finding out the wicked details of some other Christian's failings. So they never help anyone, but as soon as a story is being told, did you hear about so-and-so, another Christian in the body of Christ, and what they have done or failings in their life? Oh, pull up a chair. Let's hear all about it. The wicked details of someone else's failings. He says this, have you heard of someone who has fallen into some sin? And have you been tempted for curiosity's sake to see what the trouble is? According to Obadiah, this is something you should not do, end quote. Somebody's failing? Somebody's struggling? You don't go and go. Story time with somebody. Somebody comes and says, did you hear about so-and-so and what they're going through? And let's lay their life bare and, and embarrass them and so on. We, we should say, no, no, wait a second. Before we hear this, how about we just pray without any details? Without any details. Let's just pray for that person. Let's not make it a sordid gossip prayer request by committing the sin of of Esau. Oh, how God is against the aloof person. You know, one of the one of the categories of of those who are going to be thrown into hell, the Bible says, is the cowardly. The cowardly. Those who would not stand up for the truth, those who would not cry out when they were supposed to cry out, those who would not stand for those who needed to be stood for. And perhaps even as we're listening to this, we need to be thinking to ourselves, what are the circumstances in my life that I need to be speaking out more for the person who is weak, for the person who's being attacked? And maybe they even did some things wrong, but I need to stand up for them. I need to protect them. Love covers, the Bible says, a multitude of offenses. If you flip with me to uh, Psalm chapter 38, Psalm chapter 38, Psalm chapter 38, Psalm 38, Psalm chapter 38, verse 11. It says this, Psalm 38, verse 11. My friends and Companions, listen to this, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. This is exactly what Obadiah is talking about, the person who stands aloof. And listen, sometimes all it takes is for somebody to see somebody else is struggling or hurting and all they need is some words of comfort like, God loves you, you're going to make it. And perhaps all they need is silence and just somebody to sit there with them and go through it with them. And they just need the, the sense that somebody is saying, I've got your back. 
got your back. No matter what's going on here, I got your back. And God is saying to Esau, he's saying you didn't have your brother's back. And therefore, I'm going to judge you. Now let's go back to Obadiah. Obadiah chapter 1, the only chapter. Obadiah. It says this, verse 12, but do not gloat. Here's that gloating. It's, it's, this, there's a progression here. There's a progression in the text. They're standing off silently. Now they're gloating over what is happening. Do not gloat over the day of your bro brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. This is all very present. He's saying, don't do that. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster. Ha! Look at what's going on to him. It's about time in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. So there are people who are trying to get out of Jerusalem. They're trying to get out of Judah. And there is this progression of sin, of standing aloof and now gloating. And then he goes on to say that there are actually uh, people who are trying to escape from the city. And Edom is standing at the crossroads waiting for them. So not only are they making fun of them, not only are they standing aloof over them, but they're actually waiting for them in the streets to capture them. How evil is this to capture them and to take them back to their captors? You're not going anywhere. We're going to catch you. We hate you. We can't stand you. We're going to take you back right over here, back to the Philistines, back to the Arabians, and later on back to the Babylonians. We will, we will be glad to help you. How awful would that be? Family gloating, family standing aloof, family actually handing one over to their captors. This is pride's ugly manifestation. And because of it, God comes down with pride's judgment. Look with me at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Now, the day of the Lord has different contexts, and sometimes the day of the Lord simply means a day that was going to come then. And in the case of Edom, it would come then. They're not still waiting for judgment they would receive judgment. They would be finally uh, cut off throughout the silent years by the Jews, Judas Maccabeus, John Arcanus. During the silent years, these Jews would cut off the Edomites and be used in judgment against their brother. John Hyrcanus would come and he would defeat them. Later on, the Romans in 70 AD would finally cut them off as well, and they would be completely cut off, and we have nothing of the Edomites today. There is not an Edomite around, because God says, I'm going to cut you off, and I'm going to cut you off completely. But he doesn't, doesn't just say the day of the Lord is near. It was near for them. Very close. In fact, it happened over a stretch, over a period of time. But he says here in verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. All the nations of the earth are going to be judged. And so there is going to be a time when the United States of America, listen, is going to be brought 
before God, when God comes on that day, that day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment on sin, it's a day of rejoicing for all those who believe and know him. But the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. And so the day of the Lord was then, and it's coming later on as well. And there are going to be nations standing before the Lord saying, did we help so-and-so when they were in distress? Did we go and rescue them? Did we take care of the person who was caught and afflicted and trapped? I can't help but think, and I've, I've thought about this, this young kid before, but many of you know the story of this college kid who goes over to North Korea, and he ends up stealing a poster, something along those lines, and he's ended up sentenced, and right now he is currently in prison for a long time in North Korea. And beyond that, I've read and I think about all of the atrocities that are going on in North Korea right now as there are people in these slave camps that are not even humane. They're, they're not even fit for a rat. They're so despicable. The conditions are so abhorrent. And for us to say as a church, Lord, if there's anything we can do in grace and mercy, Lord, let us, let us do the first thing. Let us pray. Let us care about the plight of others who are suffering Lord, on that great day when we stand before you, let us say we cared about those who were suffering. Lord, we were on our knees saying, rescue them. I've shared this before, but being in Asia, there was a, there was a sense with, with me that if anything went wrong, and thank the Lord it didn't, if anything went wrong, the, the sense was, who's coming for me? Am I going to be okay just in the sense of, is the nation going to come to my and our group's protection? And so God is, God is judging Edom, and he has already done that in history. He has judged them right down to the last person. The haughtiness, the pride of Esau and his descendants, he has judged them for saying, we're not going to help, but we're going to stand aloof, and we're going to gloat, and we'll even help in the capture of those who are being harmed. So he says this, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. That day for us is still coming. As you have done, it shall be done to you, for your deeds shall return on your head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Remember the, the wrath of God? This is what God is talking about. You have drunk. You've drunk wine on my holy hill. You've had a great time. Everything's been going good for you. But the time is going to come when you are going to drink of the wrath of God. This is why it's so precious to us as believers that that wrath of God that the Edomites were to drink of and, and anybody who does not put their trust in Jesus Christ is to drink of, that wrath of God that they were to drink of and they did drink of. That wrath was put upon Jesus Christ and he drank the wrath of God for us right down to its very dregs verse 17 but in mount zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of jacob shall possess their own possessions the house of jacob shall be a fire and the house of joseph a flame and the house of esau stubble he's saying god is going to use the israelites to come in judgment this literally happened. It happened, as we said, over the period of the silent years, and later it happened again with Rome. And shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house 
of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. By the way, there were some Edomites still in the days of Christ. As we said, they weren't completely destroyed until years later. But this hate relationship continued. Herod, Herod the Great, was an Idumean, which is just the terminology, Greek terminology for Edomite. He was an Edomian. And it was this man, this destructive man, that would say, kill all of the little boys. So you can see this antipathy that was still going on down through history, even, even raising its ugly head through Herod the Great. But judgment is coming. And sometimes we think about the justice of God, and the attitude can be, we're going to pay back. Listen, God sees every unjust thing that has ever been done under the sun for all these thousands of years. He has watched every unjust thing that has ever happened. And God doesn't say, well, it just doesn't matter. Who cares? It's, it's no big deal. God's a forgiving God. Listen, it's God's love that demands justice. It's his love that demands justice when six million Jews are killed in Nazi Germany when Christians and other people are tortured right now in North Korea, justice cries out. When babies are slaughtered in our country and many are silent, justice cries out. When those who are afflicted and mistreated and nobody says anything, it's justice that cries out. And the Bible is absolutely clear for those who are being afflicted. One of the comforts that the Bible says is God is a just God. Things will be righted in the end. You say, well, we've gone through our whole life. We've seen injustice after injustice happen in our life. Who's going to right all of these wrongs? When are all of these wrongs going to be righted? God says there is coming a day, that day of the Lord, when all of these unjust things will be taken care of. Look with me at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 16 says this. Uh, Live in harmony with one another. Uh, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So by the way, we're looking around in the, in the church. We're looking around at school. We're looking around at work. We're looking at the one who is mistreated or that nobody seems to like, and we're their friend. We go up to them and we say, well, hey, can we hang out with you for a bit because we, we care about them as Christians. The Bible here gives us a specific command to associate with the lowly. The lowly. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Here it is. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, here it is, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Pride is going to be judged, but there's also a reversal, and we close with this. There's going to be a reversal of pride. By the way, all of the things in, in this book of Obadiah are literal. 
So God comes to Edom. We understand this. We're trying to figure out where this happens in history. We're thinking it could have happened in one of these two places when Jerusalem, when Judea was assaulted, and we're trying to narrow it down, and we're saying it could have been 845. That's what it, that's what it looks like. It could have possibly been 586. And then God comes to Edom, and he says, I'm going to judge you for your sin. And listen, God literally judges Edom in history. He actually judges them. This isn't God just saying lofty language. This is why when we go through the prophets, it's easy to kind of get lost in all this language. What is God actually trying to say here? What is he, what is he speaking so clearly? It's our dullness. We're just not, we're not hearing correctly. And God is saying, I'm going to judge Edom literally. The real people in a real place at a real time. For the sins that they have committed against their brother Jacob, and they have committed many, and it has gone down. There's been this pattern of destroying and haughtiness and all these different things. So if this text is literal about Edom, listen very carefully, then the next verses about Israel are literal. What some people have said is they've said, well, these verses, you see, they, come, they somehow kind of switch. They switch from Israel. They're not really talking about Israel here but later on they're fulfilled in the church. So God is spiritually going to fulfill these promises that we're about to read here, these few verses, and then close. He's going to spiritually fulfill them in us, the, the, the church. The people are sitting right here, and people have sat around for 2,000 years. But there's a problem with that. How can God be speaking literally to Edom in all of these different passages of this text, and all of a sudden you get to Israel, and God says, you know what? I'm going to speak in symbolism and spiritual talk. And by the way, this is where things get so fuzzy because people are kind of trying to think, is this really about Edom? And is, it, is Edom really going to be judged? And when are they going to be judged? And when did they commit these sins? But if we understand the categories, we understand when they've sinned or we think when they've sinned, if we understand how they're going to be judged and that, that they actually were judged in history, then when we come to these next passages about Israel, we say this, listen, they're really about Israel. They're really about the actual nation of Israel still yet to be fulfilled. Notice what he says here in verse 19. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those of Shapella shall possess the land of the Philistines and shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. Remember, they were taken out. They were, they were scattered in this early defeat, but they were also scattered later on in 586. We see this throughout history. There could even be a a double fulfillment from God as he's saying this is going to be fulfilled then, but it's also going to be fulfilled later in history. They shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Here's what he's saying. He said, I'm going to bring all the Israelites who have been defeated. I'm going to bring them back to the land. I'm going to bring them back. And I'm going to give them this piece of land and this piece of land, all of the different things that were stripped away from them. 
I'm going to give back to them. I'm going to reverse their fortunes. This is pride's reversal. God does, um, isn't God good? He does so far beyond what we expect. And so we think we possibly could even, we live in exciting times. Because we see back in the late uh, 1940s, 1948, when Israel becomes a nation again. And God, we can see even right now, and we can say that we think this is even the beginning of the fulfillment of prophecy. May it be so. That God is bringing his people back to his land. And someday when he comes, there's going to be a millennium as Christ rules over the nations. And the people of Israel are going to be secure in their land. So God is saying there is this promise for you, Israel. And if it was literally fulfilled for Esau, if it was literally fulfilled for Edom, it will literally be fulfilled for you. So we say, well, what do we get from this as we close? Well, there's a lot of things we get. There's a lot of things that we get about pride. It's manifestation. It's judgment. Judgment is coming, even for those who do not believe. I want you to listen to this, and then we'll pray. Here's what we can get. Unlike Edom in their fortress, listen, Jesus is a mighty fortress. He's our strong defense, Psalm 18, verse 2. He is an unfailing ally. He's the one that sticks closer than a brother, Proverbs 18, 24. He is the wise man, the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. He is the just avenger. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3. And he is the blessed restorer. He gives beyond our imagination. He's the one who makes all things new. According to Revelation chapter 21 verse 5. And aren't you thankful for that? Would you stand with me as we close? Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you're our mighty fortress. Martin Luther had it right when he said, a mighty fortress is our God. Jesus, we thank you that you are our faithful friend. There's no one like you. You're the ally who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus, we thank you that there is wisdom that comes from God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. We thank you, God, that someday all of the wrongs that have been done in this world will be righted. And we thank you, Lord, that you're going to restore all things and make all things new. And so we have hope in you. And we thank you for lessons from Obadiah. Your word to us. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.